It is the stuff of music legend in 1967, young Reginald Dwight and an even younger Bernie Taupin both answered an ad in the New Musical Express for songwriters. Reg played the piano and wrote tunes and Bernie was a bit of a poet and thus began one of the longest and most successful music collaborations ever. When Sir Elton John was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994, he said without Bernie Taupin, there would be no Elton John. Now, Taupin's written his memoir, Scattershot, Life, Music, Elton and Me. I asked him about those sessions at the Troubadour in L.A. that launched Elton onto the world stage. It was part of a gradual climb. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a, a complete launching pad. I mean, it was a temporary uh, buzz, but there was a tremendous amount of work to do after that. I mean, it was only, you know, the Troubadour was just regional. I mean, we got a great reception from it and it it launched us in that particular area. But immediately after we went, there we went from there to San Francisco, where we didn't get very good reviews. We got a great reaction from the crowd, but we didn't get a similar review like we did in Los Angeles from Robert Hilburn in the LA Times. And I think that's probably because San Francisco at the time was kind of regarded as being a little more highbrow and they thought very highly of themselves and they didn't like the fact that they didn't get the first shot at uh, finding us out. So um, I think they wanted to try and burst our balloon, but it didn't have any effect on the crowd. But yeah, I mean, it was it, it was just a stepping stone, though. We still had to conquer the rest of the country and the rest of the world. So uh, it it wasn't as monumental as I think it's been made out to be. It really has been made out to be monumental. The list of attendees is uh, is legendary. Linda Ronstadt and Quincy Jones and Brian Wilson and Mike Love and David Crosby and Stephen Stills. And... In fact... Can I you... interrupt you there? Yeah. Again, you know, I think that's all somewhat urban myth. That's what you say in the book, right? You say if, if all... If everybody who says that yes. they were there was there, we could have played Dodger Stadium the first week we were there. So... Quite honestly, I don't remember seeing any of those people there. The only pe- the only people I ever remember seeing was Quincy Jones, Leon Russell, Neil Diamond, and a couple of the minor members of Buffalo Springfield. Outside of that, I don't remember seeing any Beach Boys there or David Crosby or anybody of that nature. So... I mean, if they were there, maybe they were there later in the week and they snuck. They certainly weren't there on the first night, but they might have come and take a look in at one of the, um, the you know, because we actually played there for a week. I think people get the impression that we actually played there only one night when it was, uh, I think, about five nights or four or five nights. Something like six and, nights, eight shows, I read, but who knows? People make okay, stuff up. Okay, well, right? maybe, you're, maybe your investigative journalism is better than my recall, so I stand to be corrected, definitely. Your recall's pretty good, though. I mean, it's a big book and it's got lots of detail. Were you taking notes the whole time? 
Yeah, but you know what? The thing is that when I went, the I think one of the reasons it's a non-linear book and it doesn't go through my life A to Z is because that was kind of um, something that I didn't feel I could even do because my recollection of of time ratios is not very good. And I didn't want to do it like that anyway, because that's the way everybody does it. So hence the words scattershot in the title, you know, I just made, I, I start off from pretty much from the beginning, but once we get to LA in the book, it really takes off in all different directions. I want to take you back a little bit towards A, however, because you say that the life-changing piece of music for you was Marty Robbins singing El Paso. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. goes to your love of all things Western and cowboy, I think. And I wanted to play it, but I wanted you to tell me why it had such an effect on you first. Yeah, because it told a realistic story. I think pop music of the day back then didn't interest me tremendously because it didn't have any cinematic quality to it. And that's why I gravitated so much to country music and narrative country music in particular and, and people like Marty Robbins and Johnny Horton and Johnny Cash who told stories of the mythical West and told them in a very dusty, realistic sense that didn't have anything to do with the kind of uh, television cowboys like the Lone Ranger and Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. They were much more realistic in their storytelling and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a storyteller. So um, that's why I definitely gravitated towards narrative country music. You mentioned the Beach Boys. There's a lovely, <laughs> there's a lovely story in the book involving uh, Brian Wilson. And it's a wonderful mm -hmm. account of a night with John Lennon at On the Rocks in London when Bob Marley and the Whalers engulfed you. And Bob pulled out a spliff the size of a baby's arm mm. and the rest is, you know, history. And then several days later, you were with John Lennon again in L.A. And what happened with Brian Wilson, bless him? Well, I mean, I don't want to give too much away because then people won't find the, the good humour in the book. But it it was an incident at a party held by uh, Jeannie Martin, the the uh, wife, well, the ex-wife of Dean Martin. And it was one of those sort of lovely kind of Bel Air afternoons with a lot of important people and uh, beautiful people and attended by, I can't remember exactly who was there, but I think people like David Bowie were there. And, and one of the people there was Brian Wilson, who insisted on me introducing him introducing him to John Lennon not once but three times and uh, and also the fact it was kind of strange is that John had met Brian on several occasions before but Brian didn't, in in the shape that Brian was in at the time uh, you know he was in sort of full sort of psychedelic fla acid flashback um it, it just proceeded to be a humorous incident simply in the fact that he kept insisting that I introduce him to John. Um, I want to go back to the writing of your song, which 
came shortly after the Troubadour, um, gives us a chance to play your song, which is a, a lovely thing. But there right. are various stories of how you wrote it, where you wrote it, and how long it took. Please tell me. <laughs> well, again, I think I dispel urban legends somewhere at the beginning in of the right at the beginning of the book because, if unfortunately, you can never trust the internet because at certain places on the internet it claims that I wrote it either sitting in a tree or sitting on the roof of a music publishers in Denmark Street, which is Tin Pan Alley in London or was at the time. And when, in fact, I wrote it at the breakfast table at Elton's mother's apartment in Northwood Hills, um, which is a suburb of London in a, in a, a flat that both Elton and I shared with his mother and his stepfather. Um, and the story is quite boring, in fact, because I sort of just jotted it down in about 10 minutes while we were having breakfast and then Elton took it into the other room and hence uh, your song was born. In fact, uh, if any of your listeners have seen the movie Rocket Man, the way that it is portrayed in there, although the movie for the most part, is a fantasy and is not chronological in the way the songs are presented. That particular uh, instance in the movie is very, very much like how it actually, ha well, pretty much how it happened, uh, except for the fact that his grandmother and his mother were not in the room when Elton was writing it. It's described as a breakout hit. Would you agree with that? Um, well, it was uh, certainly on different levels important. I think it was the you know one or it was the first or second song that we wrote together that we really thought we'd come up with something special. Um, and then also, I suppose, in reality, it was our first hit. I mean, I'm not sure it was a huge hit, but it certainly tickled the charts. That both in the UK and the United States, but I'm not sure it was the monster hit that people might have thought it was. I mean, it's it's resonated over the years and its lifespan has been tremendous. So, yeah, we, we owe a great debt of gratitude to that song, and I suppose it really was our first bona fide classic that we wrote. Um, did you really punch John Belushi out cold for insulting your girlfriend? Yeah, it wouldn't be in the book if I didn't do it. Wow. <laughs> and he forgave you? Yeah, he loved it. He loved it. I think it <laughs> says in the book, he yeah, no, he called me the next day because I was staying with Alice Cooper at the time and he had Alice's number and he called up to see if I was there and sort of thought, I mean, but that's, you know, the kind of guy he was. I mean, he loved that sort of confrontation. So he... he uh, he kind of was appreciative of the fact that I uh, did what I did. Alice Cooper, a very good friend of yours, of course. And uh, right. you and he worked on the album, 1978 album, From the Inside. Right, correct. Which was about his stay at a New York um, psychiatric <laughs> institution. But, um, it was certainly uh, an institute, I suppose. Uh, it was a little harsher than uh, a regular sort of... Um, like Betty Ford Center, that kind of thing. 
um yeah i mean i i i guess it was it was pretty tough but um yeah he came out of it and we uh i helped him chronicle that episode of his life and from uh from the inside yeah you um as well as doing so much work with Sir Elton John, you worked with loads of other people. I mean, I was looking at your songs and I see Good Morning by Kanye West. Did you did you write that for him or is that a song that you... Oh, no, no, no. That's Where did a that sample. come from? That's his version that's of a, it. That's a sample. We've been sampled a lot. I mean, uh, Tupac Shakur sampled one of our songs, uh, Eminem sample one of our songs but sample and writing with people are two completely different things at what point do you say that's more than a sample um we deserve something from that track because sampling is quite a tricky thing isn't it well yeah but if you sample you get paid i mean there's no question about it. if somebody tries to sample and not pay you then you know they, they're going to get into a world of hurt all right um, we built the city. That was for Starship, who had the hit with it. And in the book, you're um, you're quite harsh on Grace Slick. Well, she was quite harsh on the song once she uh, realised that you know she'd made her uh, dollar fee from it, and once the it was out of the picture, she didn't say anything while it was a hit though. Why did she take against it so? Why was it such a polarizing song? Well, because she, because it was, you know, she came from such a, you know, the the whole psychedelic San Francisco Jefferson airplane background, but she didn't mind getting into a pop band later on. So I don't know what she was complaining about. Genre never seemed to matter to you, though. Your tastes are so wide ranging. Yeah, well, I don't really listen to pop music anyway. All I listen to is jazz. Yeah. So. You know, it's I, I don't mind writing. It doesn't mean I have to listen to it, though. <laughs> OK. I wanted to talk to you about rare books. Um, right. You were a rare book collector. I was. I did collect first editions years ago, but ultimately I, um, I, I had that feeling that you can't take it with you. So I sold my entire collection because I wanted to invest the money in something that I could actually play around with, which was horses. <laughs> and you sold your complete collection to Rick Joukowsky, whom we're familiar with on this program. Oh, was he? <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. And he bought back a copy of Lolita, which had been inscribed to Graham Greene. Right. For $23,000. Yeah, I can't remember the all the prices Reading now. from the... your book. And yeah. uh, it went up for auction at Christie's and went for 264000 Right, It's probably worth more than that now. I bet it is. So yeah. you invested the money you got from selling your collection in a, in a ranch? Well, I, I, I bought the ranch at the time, sort of at around the same time that I'd sold the collection. So, as like I said, you know, I want... To, the, the problem with rare books is you can sort of take them out and sort of look at them occasionally. 
but you can't really engross yourself in them. If you, if you want to read them, you might as well get a, you know, a, a modern day copy of the book so that you don't mess up the first edition. You know, you're not going to read the first editions. So they were basically just like artwork, really. You just they were there to look at. I mean, I still I still read voraciously and I have hundreds and hundreds of books in my house. But, you know, and sh bookshelves of books, but they're not rare first editions like I had back then. But no, yeah, I, I wanted to invest that money into uh, buying livestock for the ranch, you know, so it, it afforded me the luxury of being able to buy some pretty good horses. Um, you were also a rodeo rider, competed as a, mm -hmm. what you call a non-pro cutter. I'm not sure what that yeah. is. Please explain. Well, cutting is, is explained in great detail in the book. Um, it's a it's a, a equine sport on its own, and it's derived from when cowboys on when they were on cattle drives, if they needed to brand or doctor a cow, they'd have to cut it out of the herd. So, like so many rodeo events, um, they are derived from things that you know were. It's like bulldogging or roping, you know, it's, it all derived from cattle drives back in the 1800s. Um, you know, you can go on YouTube and put in cutting horses and you'll you'll see what they actually do. And they're absolute magnificent athletes. It's like be, sitting on the back of a, a, a Ferrari. You know, it's 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 a rush like no other. Um, I wanted to talk to you quickly about your art. You've been a visual artist for a long time and a successful one in the United States. I think mm -hmm. you got your first UK exhibition earlier this year. How's it right. going? What are you working on at the moment? My current work is very much what I call wall sculpture. So it's found objects. Um, in fact, it's interesting because um, the exhibition that I had in London was really not my hardcore art because it would have cost us a fortune to ship everything to the UK. So what that was uh, in London uh, last year, no, earlier in the year, I should say, was a, a, a an exhibition of pieces that I created with the late photographer Terry O'Neill. I took sort of 15 of his iconic photos from the 60s, uh, everybody from Michael Caine to Frank Sinatra to Raquel Welsh, um, Elvis, uh, Paul Newman, people like that. And what I did was I sort of did my thing on top of the photos and embellished them and added sort of uh, ephemera to them. And they turned out great. They They really pop. They're very interesting. Again, um, it was it was quite successful, and uh, I think we brought them back to the states now, and we're going to be showing them here soon too. Your favorite rock record ever is the band's Tears of Rage. Absolutely. You um, were very close to Rick Danko, R.I.P., and sad yes. to hear Robbie Robertson recently died as well. Yeah, unfortunately, there's only Garth left, and Garth isn't in great straits either. So um, it's sad to see them all pass. You know, they were such a huge, huge influence on me. 
Um, and that record in particular, because it opened so many doors for me as a songwriter, it made me realize that I could write about subject matter that I didn't think would be um, apropos at that particular point in time. I didn't think people would want to hear that kind of material. So uh, it gave me an encouragement to write songs that were more cinematic and timeless. Now you, Bernie, have been married four times, uh, now to Heather since 2014. Meeting mm. her, you write, in 1998, restructured your entire life. You want to elaborate yep. on that? Uh, not really. <laughs> um, you know, it was it, it's we all we all search for the right things all the way through life, you know, and that's sort of how I felt about Heather when I met her. I just, you know, sometimes you you really realize it takes you a long time to realize what love is a very very strange um phenomenon and sometimes you think you know what it is when you really don't. And I don't think you certainly don't when you're very young and you step into things way too quickly. And But at the same time, I don't regret anything. Um, but again, it's like stepping stones to find, again, I, I look at, I look at the book somewhat like Ulysses, you know, it's, it's like the Odyssey. You're in search of something all your life. You're not sure you're in search of it, but I, uh, subliminally, I think you are. And most of the time, when you find it, it really hits you like a thunderbolt. You think that everything that came before was either not the real thing or just an elaborate sort of trick to to lead you to the the right path. If you'd met Heather earlier in your life, would that have been a good thing or is timing everything? No, timing is everything. Timing is definitely everything because I was, I I think you become, before you're 40 years old sometimes, I think you shouldn't say in too much because you ultimately always change your mind. Uh, I mean, it's not, it, there's nothing wrong with having an opinion, but you have to be aware of the fact that you're constantly evolving, you're constantly changing. And I, I know I was, I mean, um, you, you can, it's almost like being a faddist. You go through different phases of, of clinging on to certain things that you think are the right thing when they're, they're a passing phase. And so, I think by the time I met Heather, I was definitely in a more sensible place. I made a few faux pas in the early days of our relationship, but I think ultimately that led me to have stronger feelings because, you know, without her, I realized there was really nothing and there was this huge empty hole. So it led me back to her and, uh, you know, the rest is... Uh, euphoric history. It's nice to have a happy ending, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, that's what, you know, the, the weird thing is that several people have said to me, oh, well, why write a book now? Well, that's a pretty dumb question. I mean, well, you're not going to write a book at the beginning of your career. 
it's not much sense writing it halfway through your career. I'm 73 years old. I think this is probably the perfect time to write the book, especially when you know in your heart you've got everything right. Um, I mean, there's not... I, I mean, I wrote a book in 1983 called Cradle of Halos, but that was a book just about my childhood, a more sort of detailed book about my childhood. Is that the but one you write... sent to Graham Greene? Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one I sent to Graham Greene. But, um, yeah, it, it's the, this is like the perfect time to write a book. You know, I didn't write it uh, in the during you know a lot of a lot of books have been written what i call covid publications you know people took pen to paper during the pandemic and that wasn't the case with me because it didn't really make any difference to me because everything i do is very solitary anyway so um uh i would have written it either way 55 years ago you write you were incinerating decomposing chickens and breaking into condom machines for loose change. Five years after that, you wrote Yellow Brick Road, and it's the 50th anniversary of Yellow Brick Road this year, and I thought we could play it. What do you think? There you go. Why not? Thanks, Bernie. Good to talk to you. Oh, OK, great. You take care now. Thank you. <laughs>